All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. The listener's commentary represents decades of Bible teaching, hours and hours of Bible study, and we're giving it all away for free because we believe that everybody should have access to the life-giving wisdom of Jesus. And what that means is that the listener's commentary is made possible by the generous support of people who believe in this ministry and have been impacted by it. So if that's you, thanks a ton for your support. And if you've been impacted in some way, uh, would you consider prayerfully supporting this ministry? There's a link down in the notes below where you can set up a one-time or a monthly donation. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 41, to the end of the chapter. And to set that in context, Jesus is teaching the crowds, and he's in a boat uh, in the Sea of Galilee, and the crowds are up on the hillside. So you got to picture a kind of a, a little cove, a natural hillside, crowds of people filling the hillside, Jesus sitting in a boat, and he's teaching the crowds, and he's doing so in parables. And in our last recording, we looked at the parable of the sower, and that parable emphasizes various responses to the message of the kingdom that Jesus himself is preaching. Well, Jesus continues teaching here in this recording with two parables that focus on the growth of the kingdom, the automatic and exponential growth that the kingdom of God will experience. These two parables then connect with the parable of the sower in that they have to do with planting seed and with farming. So the first parable is... Uh, simply a simple little parable about a farmer planting seed and how that seed grows. And that parable goes like this, verse 26. And he, Jesus, was saying, the kingdom of God is like. And notice that both these parables start in a similar sort of fashion by saying that these are little stories that are making a truth about the kingdom of God. That is God's kingship, God's rule that is now coming into the world in and through the person of Jesus. Jesus is the king and he's bringing God's kingdom into reality. That's why he began his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. And so now he's teaching these parables to help us understand uh, something that the kingdom of God is like. This parable is going to emphasize how the kingdom of God grows somewhat automatically. This is what he says. The kingdom of God is like a man, a farmer, who casts seed upon the soil. So just like in the parable of the sower, you've got to picture a farmer with his seed bag, his prepared soil, and he's throwing the seed out on the, the soil. In the parable of the sower, that emphasized the different places that seed lands. This parable is going to make a different point. And so there goes the farmer planting his seed. Verse 27 says, after he plants his seed, he goes to bed at night and gets up daily. So he goes to bed, he gets up, goes to bed, goes, gets up, does his work. And he does that uh, for a handful of days. And the next thing you know, the seed sprouts and it grows. How? He himself doesn't know. It's like he can't explain to you how that little dried seed that he threw down all of a sudden grows up. Uh, he plants it and it grows. Uh, the soil, verse 28, produces crops by itself. Uh, literally in Greek, that phrase by itself is automate, from which we get our word automatically. Uh, and so he plants the seeds and somehow by itself automatically 
it grows. And the emphasis in the parable, as well as just in the overall thought world of Jesus and the Jewish worldview is, when it grows by itself, that means under kind of the providential hand of God. God's the one that has arranged things this way. God is the one that made seeds work this way, and God is the one that makes sure it happens. And so the soil produces crops by itself under the, uh, the providential hand of God. First the stalk, then the head, then the mature grain, the process of growing. It sprouts, grows up into a stalk, then it grows the head of grain, and then finally it turns ripe. And now, verse 29, when the crop permits, once it's fully mature, fully uh, ripe, then the farmer immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And so he plants the seed, it grows to maturity right up until harvest time. And harvest time is a common biblical image for judgment. And, and so the kingdom of God is going to grow all the way up until the final day. Interestingly enough, this parable is only found in the Gospel of Mark. And in fact, it's the only parable that's in Mark but not in Matthew and Luke. So this parable is unique to Mark, and it's important. And in the story that follows, the connection with the story that follows will be important as well. And the point of the parable is that although the farmer is a real and crucial player in the production of crops, he himself doesn't cause the crops to grow. The crops grow by their self. It grows all by itself. That is, as I noted, under the providential hand of God. And so the parable teaches that the growth of the kingdom of God is ultimately the work of God and is assured to happen up until the harvest, up until the final day. So that's the first parable. Now, the second parable is similar to it in that it has to do with, again, a seed and growth. Uh, this time emphasizing how the kingdom is going to start small and get big. It's the parable of the mustard seed, and it goes like this. And he was saying, again, Jesus is teaching, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? So the kingdom of God is like, uh, what's another parable we could use for it? Well, here's another one. Verse 31, it's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it's the smallest of all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches with the result that the birds of the sky can nest under its shade. And so here we get this other parable. And the point of this parable is about the size of the seed. The beginnings of the kingdom starts as this little tiny seed, and then it's going to grow large. And the mustard seed is approximately about the size of a grain of sand. So it's quite small. And it was actually commonly used in Jewish teaching for its smallness, to emphasize something that was small. So don't press Jesus here, as some people have want, been wont to do. Like Jesus, well, technically there are seeds that are smaller than mustard seeds. Jesus is speaking generally and not with the precision of a scientist or a botanist, right? That's not his point. He's talking about what they knew as their smallest seed. And he's talking the way Jews of his day did using a mustard seed as a proverbial example of smallness. And so Jesus takes that image of this tiny little mustard seed and then you'd plant it and it would grow into a large bush. 
10 feet, sometimes more than 10 feet tall. So it would go from this little tiny grain of sand into this huge bush that would be larger than all the other plants you might plant in your garden. And so the point of the parable is obvious. The kingdom of God is going to start small and it's going to grow large. Now, both of these parables emphasize the growth of the kingdom. It's going to start small and it's going to grow large and it's going to do so by the providential hand of God. That point about the kingdom's growth is actually important for the next snapshot that Mark will offer. But before he gives that snapshot, he first gives a quick summary statement about Jesus' teaching in parables. And so verse 33 of chapter 4, he says, And with many such parables, Jesus was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to understand it. And he didn't speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So just a quick summary statement about how speaking in parables at this point in Jesus' ministry was the regular means of teaching about the kingdom. And then when he was alone with his disciples, right, he's already said in the parable of the sower that to them the mysteries of the kingdom have been made known. They get the the explanations on the inside. So if you want to understand exactly what Jesus is meaning by that, you got to move from the outside to the inside, and listen to more and more of Jesus' teaching. So you get that summary, and that wraps up the block of Jesus' teaching in parables that Mark has given us here in Mark chapter 4. But the next snapshot, as I mentioned, is directly connected to it by means of the opening phrase on that day. So this next snapshot connects to the themes of these parables. And while it's a new snapshot that could be treated separately, and in fact, if I was preaching this, I probably would take verses 35 through 41 separately. So it could be treated separately. Its point is clearly connected to the message, particularly of these two parables uh, about the growth of the kingdom. And so I want to include it here so we don't lose that connection. So notice verse 35, it begins, On that day when evening came. And what's been happening on that day? Well, Jesus has been teaching in parables. Specifically, he's been teaching in parables about the kingdom. And these last two parables emphasize how the kingdom is going to start small. And under the providential hand of God, it's going to grow and continue to grow until it gets very large. And so it's on that day when Jesus was teaching in that sort of manner and making that point. It was on that day that Jesus said to him, let's go to the other side. The other side from where he's at, he's on the the western side of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. And so he wants to sail to the other side, that is the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, into an area that is uh, predominantly a Gentile area. And so they're going to sail to the other side. And so verse 36, after dismissing the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. It's kind of fascinating, those two little phrases, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Those are small, incidental little details that don't have like massive bearing on the story. The phrase, just as he was, it has this bearing, I think, on the story. It's that 
just as ordinary as he was. He had just finished teaching. He was tired. It had been a long day. He was just his ordinary self. So if there's any emphasis to the phrase, just as he was, that's it. He was just looking like his ordinary old Jesus self that they knew, that they ate with, that they listened to teach. So that normalness of Jesus probably has a little bit to do with what happens in this story. The uh, other boats, they're just mentioned as an incidental detail, probably uh, growing out of, or reflecting at least, the eyewitness detail that lies behind this story. One other little note is on the boat itself. Interestingly enough, in the 1980s, when the water levels of the Sea of Galilee went super low, the remains of a first century fishing boat were actually found. And it gives us an idea of the type of boat and the size of the boat that Jesus and his apostles would have been sailing on this occasion and on other occasions. I've included a picture of it in the study hub. And so if you're a member of the study hub, you can check it out there. If you're not, you can sign up for the study hub at listenerscommentary.com and you can get all sorts of other interesting information to supplement the audio here. But that boat, that Galilee boat, you can look online as well and find pictures of it. But it's about 27 feet long and about seven and a half feet wide. So it's a pretty good sized boat. And so that's what you got to picture, a decent sized boat like that with sides that were upwards of four to four and a half feet high. And Jesus and his disciples are in this boat as they begin to head across the Sea of Galilee. And here's what happens, verse 37. And a fierce gale of wind developed, a giant windstorm just burst upon them as they were out on the sea. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up with water. Now, the Sea of Galilee is known for this, where winds would rush down from the east off the the high mountains to the east of the Sea of Galilee, and then would just descend quickly up onto the sea itself. And all of a sudden, what seemed like a good day for sailing could become really treacherous really fast. And that's what happened here. A massive windstorm rushed down up onto the sea, stirred up the sea. Now you have huge waves. And with that picture of that boat in mind, these four, four and a half foot high sides and waves now are crashing over the sides of that boat, so much so that the boat was already filling up with water. So now you've got Uh, water entering into the boat itself. I can picture maybe some of these guys trying to fix, you know, they're trying to bail water out and they're like, oh my word, we're, we're in a really bad situation. And they begin to fear that this boat's going down. We're not going to get out of this alive. And what's Jesus doing? Well, look at verse 38. Yet Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. The stern is the back of the boat, in case you're not familiar with um, boating language, right? It's the back of the boat. And very often these ha- these boats had a raised platform in the back on which there would be a cushion for sitting on or laying on. So there's Jesus. He's had a long day of teaching. They're sailing across to the other side. He has laid down on the cushion in the back of the boat and he's fallen asleep. So this massive wind rushes upon them. Uh, the storm now is causing the boat to fill up with water. Uh, mist and wind and waves howling and Jesus sleeping calmly in the back of the boat. Um, And they woke him, middle of verse 38, they go to the back of the boat, wake him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? From their vantage point, 
their life is in danger. They think maybe they're going to they're going down. They're going to drown here in the Sea of Galilee, and their reaction is to wake Jesus up with somewhat of an accusatory question. Don't you care? Don't you care that we're perishing? And how does Jesus respond to their question? Well, verse 39, and he got up. So Jesus wakes up, sits up on the cushion in the back of the boat. Maybe he stands up in the boat uh, with them. I don't know um, exactly how to picture that, but he got up. I'm picturing him sitting or standing there. And he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. So we go from this massive windstorm on the sea, waves crashing over the side of the boat, the boat filling up with water, everyone's feet wet, right? Panic and all that to glassy seas and no wind. And this uh, experience, this moment shatters their categories and it should shatter our categories as well. This is like the ultimate, I don't know what just happened moment for them. No one in their day and age would have expected this. Uh, to us today, for those of us who have heard it, like we expect this from Jesus, right? We've read the Gospels. We've grown up with him. Yeah, Jesus, God in the flesh, sure, whatever, right? But put yourself in their shoes. They didn't know the exact end of the story. This is still somewhat early in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus is just as human as they are. Uh, he got in the boat just as he was. They've seen him eat. They've seen him get tired and need sleep. He was just sleeping in the back of the boat, right? They've seen him act like a normal Jewish man, granted with miracle powers because he's a prophet, but in their Jewish worldview, the kind of thing that Jesus just did where he simply spoke a word and the wind and the waves listened to him, that's not possible because only God in their worldview, only God can control the sea. For example, Psalm 107, verses 28-29. This is what would have informed these guys' thinking as Jews going to synagogue, right? Like, who's the one who can control the wind and the waves? There's only one, and his name is Yahweh. Um, Psalm 107, 28 and 29 reads, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. That's what just happened. Who did that? Well, the Lord did that. Yahweh did that. Or Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise up, you still them. This is the Jewish worldview. Who's the one that uh, controls the winds and the waves and can calm them down? Only the mighty Lord, only uh, Yahweh, God of hosts, can do that. And so as Jews, Jesus' disciples grew up on passages like these. This is the way they looked at the world. There is a creator God, and he alone can control the sea. But Jesus doesn't pray for God to save them. Jesus doesn't cry out to the Lord uh, to calm the winds and the waves. Instead, Jesus does what God alone is supposed to be able to do. Jesus gives a command and the sea listens to him. 
Just as in the Psalms, God stills the storms and hushes the waves, well, so does Jesus. This ordinary-looking man, this man who just moments ago was sound asleep because he was tired, barked out an order to nature, and nature obeyed. And that shatters their categories. This is a, a massive kind of challenging moment as to who is this one that, that's in the boat with us. Well, after Jesus calms the wind and the waves, this is what he says to them. Verse 40, he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And I, I kind of wonder if he actually said that with a half smile or maybe a little bit of twinkle in his eye, because he had to know he just blew their minds. Their fear at the storm was an instinctive response, right? Like that's somewhat normal. When you're in the midst of a massive storm, particularly if you're an experienced sailor, you recognize the power of the storm, you know you're in trouble. Fear is sort of a natural response, but his response is, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? What kind of faith did he expect them to have? Well, that's a good question. What kind of faith did he expect them to have? Um... They had seen him perform some miracles already up to this point in his ministry. So surely they had some conception of his power and authority. That's been a theme of Mark's gospel through these first handful of chapters. But controlling the wind and the waves, well, that's God's stuff. And so could he really expect him to have faith that he could do that? Like, what kind of faith did he expect him to have? And I tend to think that when he asked that question, this is probably more specific. And I think that's why Mark um, is so emphatic to connect this snapshot to what had happened on that day, right? He, he began this snapshot with that phrase, on that day, which in narrative literature, in story literature, that's like a therefore in more a teaching literature, right? And so we're like clearly connected to what happened on that day. And I tend to think Mark connected this moment to that day because what was Jesus teaching on that day? Well, he was teaching that the kingdom was going to start small and grow big. And it was going to do so automatically. It was going to do so right up until the end, up until the harvest time. And that's important. Uh, because where's the kingdom in this moment? Where is the kingdom in the midst of that storm on the Sea of Galilee? Well, it's right there in the boat. The kingdom is a tiny little seed in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. If they perish, if that boat goes down, then the kingdom goes down in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And so what kind of faith did he expect them to have? Well, he expected them to believe what he had just finished teaching, that the kingdom was going to grow and it was going to start small and get big. They should believe that. Don't you believe what he just taught? That's kind of the idea, I think, that lies behind this. Don't you believe that what I said about the kingdom is going to happen? Don't you believe that I, as the king, can make sure that's going to happen? Um, don't you believe that I really am providentially in charge, that my father is providentially in charge of this, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow large? So, yes, they have some conception of his miraculous power and authority because they've seen miracles, but no, they couldn't have conceived of him just speaking a command to the wind and the waves because only God can do that, but they should have at least believed that they weren't going to drown on the Sea of Galilee because the kingdom's going to have to grow like Jesus had just taught. 
And that all lies behind, I think, this moment here in this storm. One other little thing before we leave verse 40, just as almost at a bit of an aside, but sometimes this little snapshot, this story in the Gospels, is used to, to say things like, you just got to trust God. You got to believe. And if you do so, then he'll be the one that will calm the storms in your life, or at least he'll get you through the storms in your life. But notice, the problem is that they don't have faith. This, this text teaches the exact opposite of that. It's not that they had enough faith and thus Jesus calmed the storm or got them through the storm. He calmed the storm in spite of the fact they lacked faith. And that's really important to see. It depends not necessarily on the power of our faith, but on the authority and power of Jesus, the king himself. And so as they sit there in the boat, now on a perfectly calm sea, they are overwhelmed and awestruck at who Jesus is. And so verse 41, instead of being afraid of the storm, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And notice that phrase, very much afraid, literally is a mega fear, a great fear. They, they became afraid with a great fear is the idea. Um, and so they went from being afraid of the storm to looking at Jesus and they have a, an even deeper like fear of him, but a different kind of fear, this kind of fear that's amazement and awe and wonder at who he is. And they're wondering, who, who is this one? that the wind and the sea obey him. And this holds before us, as the reader, the central question of the first half of Mark. Mark 1 through 8 really is wrestling with and presenting for us this question. Who is this? Who is Jesus? And Jesus will ask his disciples that in Mark chapter 8, and they will answer with a partial understanding of who that is. And then the rest of Mark will clarify his identity. And so this question of the disciples holds before us as the reader that, that central question. Who is this one? Who is this one that can speak to the wind and the waves and it listens to him? So as we wrap up this story, just a couple reflections. The first one is just awe and intimacy. Awe calls us to manage the tension between intimacy and reverence. Like Jesus is there with them in the boat, just as he was. Ordinary person, ordinary voice, looking like an ordinary Jew, wearing ordinary Jewish clothes. He's there in the boat with them. And so he has come, he has come to them. He is tabernacled with them. He's one of them, right? And the same is true for us as we look back on this story that Jesus has come to us. He came and lived with us as a human being. And yet, he's so much more. He's also the Lord of all creation, the maker of heaven and earth. He designed the sun and he formulated water and he can speak to the waves and they listen to him. He's the king of the universe, full of unimaginable power and authority. And yet, at the same time, he came and pitched his tent among us and now lives with us by his spirit. So this tension, uh, awe and intimacy, closeness, uh, close relationship with, and yet deep awe at his power and his authority to speak and the wind and the waves listen to him. That's the first reflection. 
The second reflection is authority and kingdom. Authority and kingdom. And because Jesus has this much power and this much authority, guess what? His kingdom will come and his will will be done. I mean, who's going to stop him, right? That's one of the purposes of miracles like this. They're not just like cool, random little experiences. They're supposed to be like signposts pointing forward to the day when Jesus will make everything in creation good and right again, when he will take his rightful place as King and Lord and remove all sin, suffering, disease, and death, and when he'll remove anything that defaces and destroys his good creation. His kingdom will come. It is going to grow just as he taught on that day. And he has the authority to make sure it's going to happen. And so we, as his followers, can, whatever comes our way in life, whatever difficulties, whatever hardships, whatever threats, nothing is going to stop the coming of the kingdom of God. It will come because he has that kind of authority and he has that kind of power.